when I've talked to friends and I've they've they've told me things I've said, "Hey man, have you ever considered therapy?" And uh was like cuz I I go, I've been going forever. What? Yeah. Like I'm not a, yeah, I know some people, you know, might be afraid to say that. They might think it shows weakness, but I've been doing it long enough. I know it shows strength, the ability to say, "Hey, I need some help." And um I, you know, I want it to become a more normalized conversation because I know what it's done for me. It's it's really helped my ability to to work with people and communicate with people better and be on a better level. That was a clip from today's guest, Ron Martinez. Uh, this conversation is awesome. I've kind of known Ron for a long time, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Ron's been someone who is... Um, been such an important part of our community for many, many years. And I've had the chance to interact with, uh, interact with them a lot of times, uh, really on the music side of things. And then we've started to get to know each other a bit personally over the past few years. Cool guy, done a lot, very interesting. And this is a great conversation. But before we get to it, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. My name is Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. All right, man, here we are. Welcome to the show. Thank you. All right, so for the uninitiated, for those who don't know, who are you and what do you do? Uh, I'm, my name is Ron Martinez. A lot of people know me as Ron Conflict or Ron Flicked, a, a nickname that I earned <laughs> for years I hated. Um, but now I embrace it a little, you know. Uh, let's see, I grew up a working class Mexican kid and. Uh, South Orange County uh, my whole life. Uh, fell in love with music like at four years old. Been buying records since that age. Discovered punk rock at 13, 14. Joined my first punk rock band at 15. And then it was a snowball effect from there of like the bands that I was in. I would kind of be the manager, arrange the shows, you know, that we would get to as we got old, as I got older, you know, and I got in a popular band, which most people know me from Final Conflict. We started booking our own shows. Years go on and I start booking shows for other bands. Um, time goes on and then a lot of those same bands, they start saying, look, when we play your shows, we actually get paid well. We get treated well. Could you do that for us in other places in the United States? And I was like, currently, at the time, I was doing a job that I wasn't really suited for. And it um, wasn't really making me happy. And uh, I just said, yeah, why not? Like, I, and I became a booking agent without even realizing it. And so for like the past 23 years, I've been booking tours for other bands while still playing in, in the, on the side and other acts. Um, and it's my full-time job now is, is I have, I book, you know, I make a joke with people and they go, what do you do for a living? And I go, uh, I, I play punk rock and lose money. And, uh, but I make my money by booking other punk rock 
bands. <laughs> you know, that's how I, you know. The circle uh, is complete. Yeah, but but yeah, and, and it's like, you know, I've done literally everything there is to do in the quote unquote music business. I've run, worked and run venues. I did security, I did sound. Every aspect of being in a band, um, and when it comes to, I've been fortunate enough to be a part of it. I had, you know, my own record label where I put out like pre-screamo and crust bands. Like I put out, you know, a dystopia record. I put out a Thrice's first record. Um, I've just always been like, I've always looked at myself as a human mixtape. Like ever since I was a kid and when I would make mixtapes for my friends in school, like, you know, you got to hear this band, Minor Threat. You got to hear this band, Rudimentary Peni. I, I, and I would make tapes for all my friends. And so now, you know, at 57, I kind of feel like I'm a human mixtape where the clients that I work for, the bands, like, I'm a fan of theirs. I, I, our whole operations is based on, do you like this band's music? Do you like them as people? Okay, let's make something happen. It's never been, this band's going to be big. So we got to work with them. We got to, we got to, we got to break them before someone else does. It's never been about money's never been the driving factor. And I think that punk and hardcore, that's where we got that from. It was being in love with what you, what you love with the music and wanting to be a part of it in any way you can. So for me, again, I'm a human mixtape. I like these bands, the, the crew that I have that, that helps me. It's the same thing. We just want to put these bands out there and like, Hey, I dig this band. You should too, you know? So this is just another aspect of it, of what we do. I love what you just said about being a mixtape. Like, so I remember when it was like the art of the mixtape, which I think we can all go on and on about, but you do a mixtape tape because you love a band and you want to share that with other people. So if we think about what you do, it's like you love all of these different kinds of bands and you want to get that out to other people. Yeah, I, and you know, uh, we were talking earlier about, I brought up milestone bands, you know, like you want to be a part of making that band mean something to someone like it does to you. Yeah. Like it's, I've always say it's like, we're fighting the good fight, you know, and, and it, one of the things is our, our clients that we work for, um, like it, it, there's no, the quality, I get people that say, what does it take to, to be a band? You know, like, what, what do you look for when you, when you take a client on it? And I, and I'm like, well, there's been plenty of times where I've maybe one of the people on our team or something, or, or I'm like, you know, I'm not really into the music, but I'm into these people. Like I'm into what they're doing, like, and why they're doing it. So I can back this. Like, and those, but those, and those are non-negotiable things. I've had, um, I've had incidences where I've gone to check out a band because I was really into the music and then I met them and then I really wasn't, you know? And I was just like, yeah, this isn't going to be a good fit. I can't get behind this. Like we're, you know, the vibe wasn't right. Like, you know, like, uh, let, you know, well, I'll have to let this go, you know? So people who listen to the show come from a lot of different backgrounds. So anyone from like punk or hardcore is going to know what a booking agent does. But for those who wouldn't know, what does a booking agent do? Uh, it's good that you ask that because uh, many people confuse what I do and they, they'll go, oh, you manage bands. Right. Like Ron's a manager. Hey, Ron, come here. And I'm like, no, completely different thing. As a booking agent, I'm hired to 
handle the arrangements of a band's tour, meaning that I will deal with clubs, promoters, um, and handle the arrangements of that show, be it like the money, uh, working out a contract agreement between what they're going to get paid or what they're not going to get paid. And, in, and it could be a tour of three days. It could be a tour of three months, but I'm responsible for that. And that is that I just deal with the booking of the show and, and the, the finances and, and the arrangements of it to, to what parameters the band works with. So how do you know what a band can ask for? Um, well, it's based on popularity level or if, if I take on a, a, a new band that, that doesn't have much tour history, um, you kind of like, you have a starting point, you know, but it, it really is based on like, maybe if a, a veteran band contacts me, says we're looking for a new agent. Well, I'm like, well, what are you drawing? And it's basically based on the size of venues and their, their numbers. You can kind of, there's a, there's a, there's brackets of everything. Like a band that draw, you know, a band that draws 300 people a show, you know, what's a ticket like, you know, $15, $20, 25, you know, it just depends. So it's all, nothing is ever a set price. Like I, I don't, I don't really have any artists that it's like, I have some that maybe I'll say, okay, we can't do a show for less than this but there's never like a set price tag because it all really depends on the situation. So it is like, it is kind of a constant negotiation. Yeah, it is. It's a constant negotiation. The reason I'm pushing on this is like, we talk a lot on the show about like charging your worth, like know what your worth is and charge it. Cause you know, sometimes people who are like an artist or a musician or someone who's a creative can be hesitant to charge a, a certain amount. Cause they're like, well, I guess you could go to the next person. And I'm not encouraging people to be like, go out and ask for like astronomical numbers, <clears throat> but no, like know what your worth is. and Don't be afraid to ask about it, but also don't be afraid to negotiate. Uh, yeah, it, that, that is the exact same advice I give with people. And that's what I'm involved in. So like, sometimes you gotta be the good cop. Sometimes you gotta be the bad cop. And I'm, I'm there to play I'm I'm there to play the hard-nosed guy or the friendly guy on behalf of the artist so they can focus on just being a band and writing music and touring and all that. And, you know, occasionally I'll have to butt heads with an artist where I'll say, look, you should be getting this much. Like, based on your numbers and what you're doing and your fan base, this is what this band is making. You should be making the same. Like, and it's, and I, I'm really not, a, I'm not about a cash grab. I'm not about being greedy, you know, like it's about fairness. And like you said, getting paid what you're worth and making sure that you are. And that's, I think it's one of the reasons why I have such good relations with other, with promoters and stuff like that is I'm, I'm a fair guy. Like I, I'm all about fairness and um, not just trying to, you know, there's agents out there that are, you know, they ask for like ridiculous amounts of money yeah. for their artists and but they're, you know, they don't get much work for their, their bands because they're not willing to negotiate, you know. And I've just, throughout the years of like doing things for my bands and then working for, being on every aspect of the business, being a club promoter and, and dealing with agents, like I've learned you know, how to bob and weave through stuff. But I never kid myself that like, I've got this all figured out. 
you never stop paying dues. You never stop learning. And, you know, if you convince yourself you've got it all figured out, you're, you're hurting yourself. Like, you know, and, and I think that applies with anything in life. Like, you always be willing to learn, like, um, and not think that you've mastered everything. So uh, I'm going to push on something here because you've said it a number of times. And it's like whenever I have someone who's either works within music and is like a punk person, or even a punk person who works in just normal business, the money thing comes up a lot. And very often punks lead with like, it's not about the money, da, 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 da. And I know like, because you know, I've known each other for a number of years, we've dealt with each other. I've, you've booked shows that I've been a part of and it's always been so fair, so well done. Really, I am gonna go in assuming that you are not out there for the money, but you are out there making a living. And you have built something that is so cool and it matters to a lot of people, even if they don't know that it matters to them because they don't know there's a booking agency, it matters to them to see the bands or to go to a venue that they like. So around like the, the building a business side of it, how have you done that and also kind of like kept to that ethical code, like the thing that matters to you? Uh, boundaries and being able, and I wish I'd figured this out in in being in my younger years of understanding that sometimes you know you have to say no to things that you're you're not going to break your code or you're not going to and and um and just standing with that and i think that's like what punk and hardcore taught me was not being afraid to just say no i'm not doing that no i'm not going to do that you know i'm not going there i'm not going to and uh, you know, we charge, I make my money based upon what I get my bands paid. It is a commission-based, percentage-based. So if I get them a lot of money, I make a lot of money. But uh, I only make the money for what they get for performing, not their merch money, which is really what a band really, that, a lot of times you look, uh, the expenses of touring, whether they have a small crew, big crew, the money they make for performing really covers getting from show to show and paying a crew or, or whatever. The real money comes from their merch sales uh, on a, wor a working band, like a regular working touring band. And I'm one of the few agents that sometimes if you got two competing clubs and they both want the show, I'm more concerned about, and, and what my artists trust me is like, who is going to offer the audience the bigger show, the better experience of the show? And sometimes it's not, it's the club offering more money is not offering the experience that the working club is going to offer. And some agents will just go, yeah, but I don't make any money on the cool show. I make money on the business show. I always go for the cool show because I'm here to, our whole thing is about creating moments for the fans and for the band. We let our artists know, hey, here's Club A is offering you 2500 to play. Club B is offering you 1800 But you know what? This venue is like the scene venue. This is the venue where your fan base is going to. And I think we're going to have more people and you're going to make more money on your merch because there's going to be more people to see. They're going to be more, they're going to be stoked. They'll still go see you at Club A, but there's a lot of formalities, overpriced drinks even water's five dollars here here's the you know the cool club and it's it's got the same production value 
I think we should go with this. And my artists are always like, that's why we hired you. And it's kind of a no-no, especially when you deal with more bigger agencies because they're like, you just penalized yourself the possibility of making money. But it's like, yeah, but it, it's not about me. It's about the band and the fan's experience. Like, I'll take that risk. Maybe, you know, and you could end up making more money on the, better, on the more fan-based, community-based show. And I can't compromise on that. Like, yeah, I've got bills to pay. I've got, you know, I've, I do this for a living. But there's, in, integrity counts. You know, and these people, they hire me for that because they, one of the things is they're like, dude, you're a veteran. You've been through this all you know. You know, but I always give my client the chance to say yes or no to anything. I, I don't 100% make the decision. I have a few bands, like Negative Approach, those guys don't give me, they're just like, just tell us where we're playing and what we're getting paid. They 100%, like, they're the easiest guys, you know. And you would think they would be more hardline about stuff, you know. No. They 100% trust me. And again, I just want to, I want to create, we, Negative Approach just did a show on 4th of July in El Paso for a guarantee far, far, far less than they would do in a regular club, but it was a holiday show. It was a DIY show run by kids in a art space. And when I confirmed it, um, the woman who was booked the show, the young woman who booked the show was like, I can't believe I'm doing a negative approach show. I can't, I, I thought you were gonna say no. And I said, look, man, we're literally driving through your town and you wanna do a show on a holiday, which is most shows don't happen on this day. I'm grateful. And then the bands, all the bands that played, when I saw them in LA, they were like, it was such an awesome show. Those kids were so cool. We, there was a fireworks show after the gig, you know, like we had, and, and it's things like that. I'm like, yeah, this is why I do it. You know, I taught, I taught that promoter how to do a deal sheet. And like I said, this is promoter profit. You need to keep that money. You need to like, if you want to give that to all the bands, that's fine, but you really should and put a little kitty Aside, if you don't keep the money to spend yourself, keep it for future shows so you can do a show. And if you lose money, it's okay because you got money from the kitty. You know, like I want to, you know, create the next, you know, DIY kid to do shows that ends up becoming the next golden voice, you know, or takes what they did doing shows and starts a record label that becomes the next Bridge Nine, or the next Touch and Go, the next whatever, you know, it's all about, yeah. Like, this, this is why I do it. It's great to be able to like get a phone call from a festival and says, hey, Ron, we want X band play. We're going to pay them X amount of money and go, done. Hang up and go, wow, I just made X percent. Like those are cool too, but, but that's not why I did it. I didn't, I didn't go, man, I hope one day I can do, put a band on Riot Fest or the Warp Tour or something like that, you know? I just wanted to like keep feeding into this thing that we meant means so much to us, you know, and that's my contribution to it. Yeah. Okay, I gotta push a little further, man, because like I love this is why why I was super psyched that you'd come on. Um, so coming up in punk and hardcore, I remember, uh, you know, I grew up in Calgary, and 
uh, both my parents were immigrants. I have kind of an exotic name. So like in our neighborhood, I stuck out a lot. And, you know, like I got a ton of fights when I was a kid. I was like an outsider basically from the start. We'd, we'd moved from Montreal to Calgary. So I was like new to the city. Really had a rough go of it when I was young. Found skateboarding, found punk. And I felt like I stepped into a world of was like, all right we're doing this thing together. Like we're here for each other. We've got codes, like morals, ethics, all of those things. And that's not not true, but it's also not a blanket statement. So when I think about that, like just even in my own musical run, there's times where I'll just take keep to myself. There's times where I'm like, oh man, I was super, I was stuck to my code there. And other times where I'm like, oh, I acted like a fucker there. Like I was just like a dummy. Like, why did I do that? And then if I extrapolate that out, like playing in bands with people where you're like, yeah, like that was really bad what happened. Or where you're like, damn, I'm super proud to play in a band with you. Like you're so like you did, you're, you're great. Like you, you really like held the line for all of us and people can help you make good choices. But then you extrapolate out, then you've got your record label, then you've got your booking agent, then you've got your manager. There's a lot of X factors in having people operate on a, a kind of, generally assumed ethical code. So being a guy that came up in this scene and came up with a very certain specific set of generally assumed we're all playing on the same, uh, the same playing field here ethically, but also knowing you're going to bump up against people who aren't. And I'm not saying they're good people or bad people because myself included, everyone can make mistakes and be a fucker sometimes and all that. How do you more often than not make good decisions and keep things going the right way for your artists like i said uh sometimes i wish i'd figured out stuff a lot earlier in life you know learning to navigate through stuff and one of the things that i've learned like um i can be you know i can be as petty as anybody else i can be a gatekeeper about certain things like oh you know screw that band they're a bunch of fakes you know like what you know and um I, I make a point to make sure that my personal politics are not interfering with my artist. But if I know something or I have an opinion, I will let it be known to my artist, but my artist will make a decision. Like if a certain band wants to take them on tour and I might go, oh, that band's not, they're, they're not cool. They got really bad politics. They got bad, they bad, got bad personal politics. They've got bad, you know, out on stage politics i'll bring it hey this band wants to you know go on tour with you or this band wants to take you on tour but i need i need to tell you this my opinion on this is i don't think it's a good look for you to be to be a, a playing with this band this is why but i won't say you're not doing it because i'm the agent and that's what it says i let them make the decision what they do it doesn't happen all the time you know, and, um, but it has happened, you know, where I'll say, Hey, this band's got a lot of ill will with people. You know, they've burned a lot of bridges. They've said some very unpopular things in the press or, you know, it, it's a known thing. You need to know this. And, but I let the bands make a decision. And even like I had a client that I was not really I, I really had no interest in working with them because the perception they were giving of themselves online was very childish and uh, it was just something I didn't want to work with. 
you know, it's like, you know what, they can go and be them. That's just not something. And their manager was continually like, they want to work with you specifically. Like they're a fan of your bands and they, they, they like the artists that you work with. They're fans of the, you know, and they want to be, and I was just, I played polite, you know, and just, cause my personal opinion on them at the time didn't matter. It, it, I was also a little too busy. Came full circle. They, they, the manager kept asking, you know, would you, are you ready to work with the band? Would you like to work with them? I, after shooting it down twice, they were on tour with an artist uh, that I knew. And the artist said, hey, this band, really cool people. And they're really a lot of fun to be around. So I called the manager and I was like, actually, no, the manager called me and said, look, this is your last chance. I've got an, an agent that wants to work with them, but we want you to be the guy. So I ended up having the discussion with the manager and with the artist just about, hey, look, if we're going to work together, we can't, uh, this behavior, I'm not really into it. Like, and it, and it was just internet arguing with trolls, really. And, and I was like, and we had a really good talk and the band were like, you got a lot of valid points and they stopped. And cause I was, I was telling them, why are you arguing with these trolls? You've got a manager. You might, you're going to have a good booking agent, whether it's me or somebody else, you win. I go in a lot of these people, they're arguing with you because you want to argue back. I go, you don't need to bother with this. This is, this is negativity that gets nowhere. And I have a great relationship with this band. And it was because I spoke up and said, not really, I, instead of just being like, I'm busy, I'm busy. I was honest with the people around them. And I'm like, I, it's not appealing. Like this behavior isn't appealing. And the band were like, like no one's ever said that. I, and I didn't think about this stuff. And we have a good relationship working together. Hell yeah, man. It's that um, the willingness to give feedback and get feedback. You know, like <clears throat> it takes a lot of guts to say what you really think. Yeah. And be like, hey, this is bothering me. And if you want to have a good working relationship together, this, this, is, this matters to me. And also just like as a guy who has experience, here's what I think. But it also takes a lot of guts to take feedback and consider it. And really, instead of just being, oh, well, fuck it. That's just how I want to act. I, I love that. And that's not just valuable from like a band perspective, but like a, a, a work perspective. Let me ask you a question that I, I'm, I'm, I think I know, but I want to understand more. So how does it work? You've got the record label. You've got the band managers. And not all, uh, just for anyone who doesn't know, not all bands have managers, but let's, in this case, it's like you got the record label, you got the band manager, you got the band. Where does the booking agent work fit within all of that? And who do you work with? Do you work with kind of everybody? Like, It depends on the artist. It depends on the band. Uh, with some, uh, either I prefer like to just deal with a manager. And the manager tells me, hey, we want to go on this tour. Or hey, we, you know, we want to start looking for a tour. And everything goes from me to the manager. With other ones, it's um, like I have one band that the manager is just really chill. And he goes, you know what? Anything that's not super important, you don't need to let me know. The band will let me know. Uh, but keep me in the loop on important stuff. So I deal day to day, usually with the artist. And hey, we've got, uh, we got a choice of venue A, venue B in this city. What do you want to do? Instead of maybe the other band, I would talk to the manager. The man, you know. So it just depends on their arrangement. Um, and with certain bands, 
because like the dynamic of the band might be a little flighty. I'm like, I'm just going to talk to your manager because that way I just talk to one person and I don't have, I prefer to either be, to speak, if they have a manager to speak to the manager um, or if the band has one responsible person that makes sure everyone gets the message. I just like to speak to one representate, one rep for each artist, if, if possible. It cuts down on miscommunication, misunderstanding. But at the same time, I do let the, the bands know, hey man, if any of you guys have a specific question, you can call, you can email me. Like, don't, don't think that you can't, you know, oh, that's Bob's job to talk to Ron. You know, I can't speak to Ron. Like, they, they know they can, they can reach me. You know. So you said earlier on, like you're talking about that negative approach show. And for those of you who don't know, negative approach is a ferocious band from our scene that is beyond legendary, uh, like old, old band that's, that's come back. And I'd say is like very welcome, very welcome to be back. We, we all love negative approach. Um, but you're talking about the promoter uh, in Texas, like young kid figuring it out and how you show that person how to do things. You, were, you said like, yeah, and so this person was kind of like new to promoting. I was showing some stuff about like, this is how you do this. This is like, this is money you should be keeping for yourself so you can reinvest it. Okay, that's what we do. That's what punks do. Across your industry, is there, from your perspective, I know you can't speak for everyone, do you see, is there space for like new people, people who are just figuring it out? Is it welcoming or is it kind of like, no, like this is our thing and you got to like kind of push your way in? I don't feel that there is, there's a definite shortage of booking agents and especially like punk slash hardcore minded agents. Um, a lot of the guys out there, even some of the big names that are dealing with some of the cool bands do, and some of the best ones at what they do, do come from this community. Like, you know, um, because because they have the, we have the working knowledge of every aspect of being in a band and touring and and being fans. I think that fans make the best agents because they know they get the artist, they get it, they know, and so it saves time. And some of the bigger names like Nick Storch and Tim Bohr are two very big agents in our scene, and they come from the punk and hardcore community, and they're still big fans. They, you still see them at their artist shows getting excited, you know? And, and I think that that's a, not a necessary component because I've met booking agents that went to college and took business, you know, music business and they're, that's, this is what they do. That's fine. But I think there's something to be said for people who have a passion and fell into this. I didn't think I was going to be a booking agent. I thought I was going to have a, a, a regular working job and then just at night, go collect my records and sit in my room and play, you know, my first pressing of, you know, the discord seven inches or whatever, you know, uh, after work, you know, but I have a punk rock job, you know, and I, and I lucked out. Um, I, I do think that it makes us better at our jobs because of the passion that we have behind it. And not like we just know, we know about what these these bands like we know we we speak the same language so we do better work for them well having lived it being a fan it's like a, a totally different approach when did crawl space become like a real thing versus just a thing that you, you did 
I think it was in 2000 when I kind of made the conscious decision, like, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to try this thing being a full-time booking agent. I've been doing it for a while. I've been setting up, like I was working at, I was one of the two in-house bookers at Chain Reaction, you know, and, and we, me and John Halperin created the recipe for that. And I was like, and I would set up short tours at that time. I was just setting up like tours, like I could book your band starting in Arizona all the way up to Seattle. That's what I would do for bands. So a lot of bands would like book their whole tour and then just go, we just got to get to Arizona and then Ron shows take over and we're going to, everything's going to be great. So when I made the conscious decision, like I'm going to stop doing what I'm doing now because this job doesn't make me happy. I'm going to try this. It was in 2000. And I went and bought a, uh, I bought a brand new Mac and I bought a fax machine. And uh, that's when the landlines are still common. So I had a dedicated landline in the second bedroom of my apartment. And I was like, okay, I have this band I'm responsible for booking the United States. I have this band I'm responsible for. Let's, let's see what happens. And then I was working at Chain Reaction still. That was my night gig. So I had that. And it just, again, it was a snowball thing where bands started coming up to me and going, you know, when we play for you at Chain Reaction, we get paid really well. But when we play at the competing club, we got $300 for playing to double the amount of people we played for you. Could you book us across the United States? Because we want to go on a tour. And that was like bands like 18 Visions, Throwdown started coming up to me. And that was like, you know, a generation of hardcore that I was so not into. Like, it just, it was, you know, more metal. And to me, I, I still think of hardcore is like, I'm, I, like I said, I'm an old guy. I think of like Discord and and era like in minor threat government issue that's that's the hardcore and i grew up with and agnostic front so this i'm like this is a little more on the more on the metal side of things but these are nice guys you know it's like yeah why not so i started working with them and then i had like all these street punk bands and these like hardcore bands that i was working with and putting them all over the united states and then as what usually happens, these bands started to get big and then the bigger agents came around and said, thanks, Ron. We got it from here, you know? Totally and, you know, and I was like, oh, oh. You know, it was like, oh, Ron, that's called pilfered. You've been pilfered. Congratulations. You know, it's like, totally mad. you know, and, and like it, it just, it just built up from that, you know? Um, but, it was in 2000 when I said, I'm going to call it this, like uh, crawl space wasn't even a conscious, there, there really was no meaning. The, the whole thing of calling it crawl space and that started as when I was doing local shows was I was uh, confirming a date with the venue and they said, okay, so um, we'll, we'll do it as Ron Martinez presents. And I was like, no, why? Why would you, why? No. And they're like, well, what do you call your production company? Like, you got to call it something, like something presents because we, that's what we do here because we're not, we're just hosting your show. You're the presenter. And I was looking in my room and I, I had this book open. It was a Time Life true crime series book. And it was the chapter about John Wayne Gacy. And in, in, in this big type 
writer type font on this page. It just said crawl space. And I just looked and I went, call it crawl space. Crawl space presents. <laughs> there was no thought whatsoever. And then as time went on, um, we were, I was doing a lot with this uh, band from Orange County called NOE Talk, which were like kind of like power violence mixed with pre-screamo, hardcore, a little bit of metal. And we decided I was going to, hey, I'm going to help you guys put out a CD. Let's, let's do this. And it was me and my friend Andy Green. We were partners in it. We were like, well, what are we going to call it? Uh, just call it Crawl Space. So then it became a label as well. And we did a few releases. And then moving on to the booking agency side of things, I was just like, I'm just going to call it Crawl Space Booking. I'm just going to call it that. It's, I've already got, already people kind of affiliate me with that, with the local shows I'm doing. This is just an expansion of that. And it stayed. But there was, it was so not, it was just filling in a blank. And if I would have thought about it, I would have called it something different at the, you know, if I would have like, I want something catchier and something that's easier to find on the internet, you know, like, but it is what it is. And it's, yeah, it's become kind of a brand name with people, totally, man. you know, and, um, and that's fine, but that's, that's where it came from, uh, was I just happened to be reading a true kind book at the time. And it's not an endorsement of John Wayne Gacy or, uh, oh, really? Uh, or yeah, or, or, uh, <laughs> Or saying, or, uh, ooh, that stuff's so cool. Right, Two totally. stuff is cool, you know, like uh, serial killers are rad. It's, it's, it's not, it's just, it's just what it is. You know? You're not being edgy. Yeah, I'm not trying to be an edgelord in the slightest. <laughs> okay, but when does it become more than you? And how did you get comfortable with that? Or were you fine with it right away? I think it was when, it, when I realized it became a thing, when people started... Someone was speaking to someone and said, oh, those are just those crawl space bands. And, and someone told me, goes, oh, this guy got really bitter because your bands got on this show. And he referred to them, those, those are just those crawl space bands that Ron books. And I was like, oh, so we're a thing now. Like we got it. Like people are referring to it because, like, oh, yeah, like everyone knows you're like the you're that guy that rides between punk and hardcore and grind metal. Like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'll take it. You know, I, I, I was just like, I guess that's cool. I didn't think, you know, you know, like now, you know, years later, like branding, you know, like branding. Um, but, but I did after a while I started to become conscious about it and like realizing that they standards and practices and, and, kind of like forming the whole thing. Like when I started to talk with other people that, that asked to work with me, like, I want to work with you. And I was, I was like, well, here's my chance to like actually kind of come up with a manifesto, so to speak, a working manifesto. I was like, okay, well, why, what, what is your criteria? Like when you, the bands you're working with now, why are you working with them? It was like, cause I think they're great. And I would be like, cool that's what i do too you know and i was like what does it take for a band to get your attention and was finding like-minded people like i i've never farmed for people going hey i want you to work for me but you've got it this is our this is how it works i want to be told i want to hear it come from someone naturally like the people that um work with crawl space as agents are all like 
act, still active musicians in the underground community. They still get in a van and and play shows. They still they'll, they'll even tour manage other bands. And I think it makes us better booking agents because of it, because we still have that shared experience and we get out there, you know. Um, but even though that even to this day, I mean, I'm playing in three bands right now. But it's strictly like a side thing. I am, I always make this clear to anybody that I'm talking to, to work with. I'm a booking agent who plays in a band. I'm not a musician who books shows. Because they need to understand. I never want to have a band that I work with not, be, not having a good experience on their tour and going, hey, maybe our tour would be going better if our agent wasn't, on the road himself and it takes me three days to get an answer from him you know that's really important uh, huge so there's two things i want to hit you on i want to go back though like were you comfortable being a uh, like a boss a leader like right away or is it something you you had to get comfortable with i it, it it's i it, it took me a while to get comfortable with being referred to as the boss and, and like that that took a while where and I don't like even being referred to that. Um, I did. We're we're a team. And these are my team members, you know. But I I do. They everyone knows I have the final say so. And um, but no, everyone's allowed to challenge with their opinion. Like I don't necessarily agree with that. Okay, sell me on it, you know. Um, I I've always naturally been a leader. I think because again, I was the mixtape kid. I was the kid that my little crew of punk rock friends in school, I got them into every band that was cool. I was the one that got the seven inch or got a, a copy of the thing on tape. You got to hear this. You got to hear this. It's back called Urban Waste. Oh my God. You know, like, so I've always naturally just been that guy. It's being told that I am like, you're the boss, you're this. So I'm like, that makes me squirm a little bit. It's like, oh, you know. Um, but yeah, I've had to be, because, uh, it, and again, it, it also meant that I've been in a position to make uncomfortable decisions and, and, and learning how to be okay with it. And then I think that's where boundaries come in and, and being able to say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to, you know, and, and realizing you're not always going to make people happy and being comfortable with that because, um, goes I'm not going to, I made a decision when the, I think that our society has been on it, on its path. I'm going to get on a little tangent of being broken and the pandemic had a lot to do with it. It broke everyone's brains. But during the pandemic, while I wasn't working, I wasn't making money and I was freaking out and going, I, I, I was like, there's, I'm going to use this downtime to reassess what I'm doing and how I do it. And one of the things that I had decided was I was not going to work with anyone, whether it would be an artist or with a promoter, that made me roll my eyes with the caller ID on the phone or when the email came out. Oh, this guy. I was like, you know what? It, 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 it was like, it was like, life's too short. Like, we got this pandemic and we don't know how, how it's starting, but it's killing people. I could get this thing and die. And I was just like, if we make it through this, you know, whether it's, you know, we all, at the time it was like, oh, three months tops and we'll, we'll nail this down. I was like, and I talked to my team. I said, 
this, I want your feedback on this. We're not going to work with any more clients that are a headache. We're not going to work with artists or, or promoters that are a headache. I'm like, I'm just realizing life's too short to, we don't need the, you know, I know you, you know, cause I had a, a couple, we had a couple artists that were being very difficult um, to work with and was like, we always said, you know, it's, it's easy to say I'm not a slave to the dollar, but you're making yourself a slave when you're making money with these people that you don't necessarily like. I go, I don't want to do this anymore. I go, so if we have a client that ends up becoming a problem, they're obviously not happy. And they're making us unhappy. It's time to reassess everything. And we've stuck with that ever since things got rolling. Like I, you know, we parted ways and it was like, hey, look, you're not happy. We're not happy. It's time for us to, it's time for us to part ways, you know? Um, and it, it's one of the things that was I always have to remind my team of, of like don't don't put yourself in a position to be doing work that doesn't make you happy life's too short and we we got a rock and roll job man we have the coolest job it shouldn't be miserable you know like you you know we could do our job any time of the day you know and um, that's what I got out of the pandemic. All right. Well, you, you opened up something that I, I'm super curious about. How did you say both professionally and personally, how did you survive the pandemic? Like how does, how did you go with over two years? I would imagine of just not making money. How did you keep the business going? But also how did you keep going? Because you clearly care about what you do. You love it. You're invested in it. So that side of it, it's not there. Plus you play in bands, which I know is important to you and you weren't able to do that. So both professionally, how did Crawl Space get through and how did you get through? Crawl Space got through, uh, Crawl Space got through um, getting grants, um, learning, learning a lot about local politics, I, I, you know, to get grants and stuff like that. And I started getting side hustle jobs where um, I started doing a lot of analog to digital conversion for record labels and for people. Uh, I, I spent a little bit of money. Um, I always had money put aside. Did not, wasn't expecting a pandemic, but I had money put aside. Like I was like, hey, for the next six months, everything's going to be fine, but I got to find a side hustle. So I started doing analog to digital conversion for some labels uh, and bands. Like they would send me cassettes of live recordings and they're like, hey, we're going to, we're going to reissue, we're going to put this out. So I would transfer it from a cassette to the digital to be sent to the mastering guy. And then there was a few labels that, uh, because I don't have many vices, but one of my big vices is my vinyl collection and spending an excessive amount of money on things like on audiophile stuff. And I happened to get, have a really expensive turntable and an expensive cartridge on it. So I, started uh with some of these labels they were like hey we're gonna reissue this band's record and the master tapes don't exist we're gonna have to source it from vinyl so either they would or i would help them find a mint copy of it i would take it from vinyl take the analog signal transfer to digital files send it to the mastering guy and there's a couple releases out there that I, honestly the re the taken from vinyl we made it sound exactly, if not better, like a clean vinyl copy. You wouldn't even notice. Even to the point where some of the bands had told after the mastering got done, 
were like, this is what it sounded like when we were in the mixing desk. It's never sounded this good. And I, when the record came out, I was so upset that it sounded muted and muffled. And this reminds me exactly what it sounded like. You know, I was like, cool, awesome, you know? So I was doing some of that, but it was a lot of like, you know, buckling down, getting rid of things like, oh, no satellite radio, getting rid of the cable channels, you know, getting rid of this and, and buckling down and eating a lot of, you know, ramen and pasta and beans. Uh, but got through, was never late, you know, was never late with the bills, never late. I actually ended up during the pandemic, since I wasn't spending a lot of money, I got caught up. I paid off a lot of bills. Um, but a lot of the time too was worrying, like, are we going to have live music again? Are we, you know, like, um, talking with the bands that I work with, just saying, how you doing, man? Like checking in with each other and encouraging them to continue to create any way that they could, you know, um, it, it, you know, that was the one important thing to me was trying to stay in touch with the people that I was working with on a regular basis, doing zoom, doing zooms with friends just to talk and, and get through. It was rough because the, there was even a few booking agents that I was, would communicate with. And we were like, Hey man, uh, if this does, if this, there's not, you know, a vaccine or some, we can't turn this around. I'm going to get, I'm thinking about going to get another job. And even I was going, the post office is literally across the street from my house. I'm getting, I'm ready to go walk over there and apply and then go work, go to work at an Amazon warehouse till the time comes and was, was going like, you know, when it was still unknown, you know, uh, and I started rebooking tours at the tail end of 2021, and it was scary. I was worried. And there were certain areas, like I, a lot of my bands that were like, we want to go on tour, don't send us to the South or Florida. We don't want to go to Florida because the, the, it's, it's rant. We would be careful. And I can remember like telling my bands, if you want to opt out of this tour, go ahead. Like, I'm not going to, I don't want to make you. And they were like, we want to try and do this. We see other bands going out. Our friends, you know, are going out. It was, I, you know, it was, it was a scary time, but we got through it. You know? Were you able to keep Crawl Space together, like the team together, or did you have to lay people off? No, no, we, we, we kept everything together. The main thing was communicating with each other and we would do Zooms and just talk. And then, hey, you know, and we would try to plan it like, maybe in three months we'll be able to start working what do you what is what are your bands telling you we were continually talking continually talking and i i tried to not overestimate like when it came to like certain like grants and things like that i really was adamant about just taking what we needed like only what we needed not uh and you know because I didn't want to end up overestimating or end up owing back, you know, too much. So, you know, but small business loans and stuff like that were done too with the SBA. Got through it and, and learned a lot. I, more than anything, what I got out of the pandemic was kind of learning to like focus on inner peace and, and learning to be okay with situations that 
were beyond your beyond my control because I'm such I'm I'm like you know what if a band of mine breaks down in the middle of nowhere and they're calling me at two in the morning going our van just you know broke down there's a good chance I can help them through that crisis or 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 something but this is something I can't control and and someone like me when you can't is the most annoying thing. It's like having a Rubik's cube and you just can't get it right. You know, and you're like, I could do everything else and I can't do this. And the pandemic left all of us like in virtually no control. And once I, and I, I accepted that really quick, but I was like, I've got to learn to be okay with this and just live in the now. And so I took the time to kind of like come up with a recipe for functioning. That it was that I intended to carry it once all this stuff, once the pandemic and and things were lifting and we were going to be back. I was like, I want to implement a way of living and a way of working that will apply from here on out. You know, it was really important to me, and I think it's helped. Well, let's let's go a little deeper because you know something that you and I um, chatted on before we started talking is I know for you normalizing the conversation about like mental health. And the, and the work that people, people being comfortable to talk about or engage in the work of being okay or, or getting okay, or at least finding a, a space to really talk about it. So during the pandemic, especially in the kind of job that I do, I just saw people breaking down and I was breaking down. Everyone was, it was really hard, but now coming out of it, I do think there's more openness to the conversation and i know companies are like oh let's talk about mental health but it's still like stigmatized in our society so what do you want to tell us about your own journey like what's important to you in, in this conversation i think yeah i think I, it's really important to me when i'm talking to, to band members client clients and just with anyone in general that i'm really open about mental health and and i just say hey man like uh, you think I got it so together? Like one of the reasons why I might seem so level-headed is 30 years of therapy. And I, I'm not, a, I bring it up like as flippantly as someone might say, I went and had a smoke, you know, or I went, I went for a jog. I go, oh, went for my Wednesday, I had my ther Wednesday therapy. Like I, yeah, I got it. I got to do it. Um, and it's, it's really helped me with, give me tools to like function in life. And was prior to going to therapy, I would always like have like these moments where like, how do I end up in this situation? How do I, you know, here we are again, I'm in this same situation, I'm in this cycle. Therapy kind of helped me show, hey dude, it's not the other people, it's you. It's you that put yourself like, like remember when your friend went and did this and you didn't say anything and then you ended like, and I was like, wow. I'm attracted to this behavior or I'm attracted, you know, and I was like, yeah, I got to break this. And that was just, that was like the building when I had that first epiphany, like when my first therapist, but it's really helped me with like boundaries and just like being able to learn, like being able to say, no, I'm not doing that. Hey, this is, hey, this is not good for me. This is not good. Like, this is not a situation I want to be in. And um, I try to, in my life, like I really try to avoid um, using soundbite or uh, terms like uh, toxic, you know, toxic personalities. Like I hate, I think that sometimes 
once a certain word gets thrown into our lexic uh, your lexicon it becomes like just it becomes just a word like um a lot of people like i think one thing annoys me someone's always using the word gaslighting i go let's just call it what it is it's lying you're lying like uh, let's be direct and but yeah therapy is really like it's one of the reasons why i come off as so together you know because i it's it really given me building blocks uh of of having stability you know um and teaching me things like the importance of sleep oh yeah like uh sleep hygiene things like that like, i didn't know like one of my therapists said you practice sleep hygiene and i'm like i i take a shower before i go to bed <laughs> You know, and it's like, no, 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 no. This is what sleep hygiene is. And I was like, wow, man, that makes total sense. And it was like, you know, I'm a guy that's not into like brand name things. I don't have to have the best of it. I don't need to have the most modern iPhone. But one of the most, in the last few years, like expensive thing I ever bought was I spent $2,000 on a mattress. Best investment I've ever made. Because, you know, uh, for me, at least, it's like sleep, food, sex. Most important keys to like having a, a, a good, stable life. Like you shouldn't skimp on like those things like or things that make it finding a partner and all that stuff that it, it's equal important. Like sleep is so important, man. Like to the point where... um. I realized I wasn't getting proper sleep because I'm also a cat, a coffee fanatic. And I was like, I'm not, why am I uh, not getting good sleep? Oh, because I had four cups of coffee today and my anxiety levels are going nuts. So I like stopped with the coffee. Now I have maybe a coffee every two weeks, but my sleep is so good. And I literally like for the past, like, I don't know, good six months since I stopped in taking so much caffeine, I hit the bed five minutes later, I'm out. And I really try to get it like eight hours, no uh, matter what. My wife and I travel with travel pillows. Like we have like specific pillows that we bring with us everywhere. That's awesome. Because we invested in nice pillows so that we can do this. And sleep hygiene is like, I we did a whole episode on it. Uh, we have these short versions of the, of the podcast called Sprints. And we did a thing on sleep hygiene. My sleep was like, our sleep was like horrendous six months ago. And for literally every reason you just said, for us, it wasn't a mattress, it was pillows. Uh, game changer. And by the way, everyone, this is not just us being old. Like it totally, totally matters. Um, uh, let's go back to 30 years of therapy, um, 30 years ago. So I know, as I said earlier, it's like the conversation around mental health seems like it's like everyone's game to do it, but there's still a ton of stigma. And breaking through that stigma, I think, is one of the most important things we can do as not just a punk community, but just a, a global community is like really normalize talking about mental health, just like you talk about physical health or diet or anything else. But 30 years ago, the stigma is like poosh, through the roof. So and sharing whatever you're comfortable sharing, like what made you take that leap or how did you find the guts to take that leap? Um I realized I was on a pattern of behavior that was either going to end up, I was going to accidentally kill myself or someone else. 
like I was being really careless, a lot of like partying. Um, and I was driving my roommates nuts because I was just a lush and it was a lot easier to self-medicate than deal with what I was going through and process it. So got to the point where one of my roommates just said, dude, you're a handful and this is getting old. And I was just like, you're right. And so I was just like, I need, I need to stop this. And so, uh, it was, a, I, I know specifically it was right before New Year's Eve and I went to go see the Muffs at Raji's. And at that show, they gave everybody a, a plastic champagne glass and gave everybody champagne. When the New Year's came, we all toasted. And I took one sip of the champagne, I threw, the, threw it in the trash, and then I told my friend that I was at with the show, I said, all right, that's the last drink I'm going to have for a while. They're like, what? I said, that's it. That was my only drink. And it, I'm, I go, you know what? kind of a mess right now and I need to I need to get on the right path so I'm not going to drink I'm not going to do anything and I'm going to go into therapy I think I need it and uh, so I sought out this is pre-internet um, I actually went through the yellow pages and found a counts like a family counseling place I went down there and made an appointment and told him like, I'm just angry. Uh, I was in a really bad relationship and this other stuff I'm dealing with. They would ask all the usual questions, you know, does alcoholism run in your family? Does this? And I ended up, uh, it was, it was the scariest thing I had ever done. I remember being in the office waiting to just do the, the entry interview and like I, I've played at Fender's Ballroom in front of 600 angry skinheads before. But in that office waiting room was the scariest thing I'd ever done. I was ready to leave any second. Like, uh, but I did it. And uh, my first therapist was Bill Singleton. And it took a few, it was, it, the first few therapy sessions were scary because I kept feeling like, Oh, he's going to say I'm a piece of shit because I'm feeling these things. I'm a bad person. And then I realized pretty quick, I was like, no, everyone has these feelings, you know? And I, I, you know, there, there's times I'd leave therapy and I'd feel ex physically exhausted and wrecked. And other times I'd walk out light and just felt like a whole burden was like, and uh, there's a final conflict record where he's actually thanked on it. Uh, I, I thanked him by name because you really kind of like, again, I'm here because of that guy, like help me process a lot of things. And, and again, it was a lot of, it was like, Hey dude, this isn't other people. This is you. You're just not processing this stuff. Right. And, um, so I've always consistently, you know, throughout the moves when I moved to Austin, Texas and stuff, I've gone to therapist, I would go through periods of like, maybe like not going to a therapist for like six months or a year. But uh, within the past like 10 years, I've never, I've just realized that it's a real key. It's, to me, it's like no more than doing band rehearsal, you know? And I'm also, and I, and I uh, when I've talked to friends and I've, 
they've they've told me things i've said hey man have you ever considered therapy and uh was like because i i go i've been going forever what yeah like i'm not yeah i know some people you know might be afraid to say that they might think it shows weakness but i've been doing it long enough i know it shows strength the ability to say hey i need some help and um I, you know, I want it to become a more normalized conversation because I know what it's done for me. It's, it's really helped my ability to, to work with people and communicate with people better and be on a better level. Um, and uh, just process a lot of like traumatic things that have happened in my life as a kid and um not carry so much, not carry anger. Cause I had a lot of anger about things and, um, dealing with it in therapy. And, and, and really it was a lot of it was just talking about it and, and shared experiences. Uh, one of the things is realizing that I'm not special. I was dealing with a lot of things that lots of people deal with, you know, and having someone to speak to, to tell me that and saying, Hey, this is how these people de deal with it. You know, here's some tools, you know, uh, and it, it's a functional, like it's an important and functional part of like my being, you know, like it, it, it gives me the uh, important coping mechanisms, you know, and that's why I'll tell some of my friends, hey, I know you think that I have it together, that I'm a real together guy, but one, and one of the reasons is because I go to therapy. I get this poison out, you know. Can I share something with you? Yeah. Um, so I was, uh, I was an addiction mental health therapist for about 10 years. And um, people would always say to me, like, oh, Ram, you know, you've got it so composed. How can you listen to all of this, this suffering all the time? You just seem so grounded. But I was, like, totally not grounded. And the funny thing is you'd think a therapist would be, like, super willing to go get therapy. But I was like, no. I just took all of this stuff and I just pushed it down and pushed it down and pushed it down. And a lot of the ways that I dealt with things was through working. And so like bands, like I'd make myself busy with bands or like we'd go on tour or, you know, whatever it is. I was constantly, constantly busy and enjoying none of it, like depressed, upset, feeling bad. And I fell into a lot of like people pleasing habits because something that did make me feel good was helping people. And I kind of took that bridge from like helping people in a way that was like easy for me to do to like helping people in a way where I was just like giving, 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 giving and like kind of always feeling like, oh, this sucks. This doesn't feel good. I feel like I'm being taken advantage of. And then voicing that to people and then kind of being like, oh, you're being such a, you know, like fucking cry me a river kind of thing, right? And I hit a point in my life where I just kind of felt like, well, I guess it's just my lot in life. Like, you know, like this is just who I'm going to be while being a therapist and not going to deal with it. I had a lot of like shame and, um, shame and anxiety about talking to people about it because i'd gotten so much feedback in my life i was so together it's like and being told you're together feels good but it also feels bad because you're like i guess i can't say anything about how i'm not together uh and then you know things progress in my life i take some kind of like personal life hits but then i just had this really one major event and it was a bunch of major events that happened all all at once like all within this like really tight period there's probably like a six month period where my whole life was turned upside down and I came fucking crawling to a therapist, like on my last legs. I uh, worked with this therapist named Christian Monks in Vancouver for a few months and then stopped for like 
other reasons I won't get into, and felt I had it enough together. And again, like kind of like push everything down. This is when I started Cadence. And for about a year, things were going well. Cadence was going really well and everything. But like all of this stuff that I'd started processing with this therapist that I'd suddenly cut off, just I'd push it down. And it kept coming up and up and up and up. And one night I had this sleepless night and I, I thought, if I don't go and see this therapist again, this is the end of me. I'm done. And I don't know what that meant. Like, I don't know what, where that went, whether it's like I just stressed myself to death or whatever it was. And when I said before, I was like crawling into that guy. This time I was like, if carried me out on the stretcher, I was finished. And I saw that. I saw Christian for every week for two years straight to kind of just like piece myself back together. But at the same time, I'm running a business. You know, I was uh, like, I'd started a family. Um, I was working, just working on, on being a person. And that's how that change record came together was through him. Um, basically, he was like, you're so tied up. You're so like um, tied up inside. You need to express yourself. And he was getting me to like just write lyrics. And they were, ter- they were terrible. They were terrible. But, you know, you refine it. You go through it. And uh, I'm such a believer in mental health stuff. But also at the same time, I could just be totally full of shit where I try and hide it because I, I, I want to be that together person. And the more that I'm, I allow myself to not be that together person, the more I become that person because I talk to people, I can be open about stuff, I can be vulnerable about stuff and I can express it. But it took me a long, long time. And that's why it's such an important part of the podcast and why we do talk about it. Yeah, I, I, yeah and I appreciate that. I actually had the exact same thing happen almost that you like, I got out of therapy, I got so busy with work and got distance from it when I was living in Austin. And then I had a series of events that started to make me crumble. And um, I wasn't feeling physically well, went into the doctors and uh, he just, he was very annoyed with me. That's a vibe I got from the physician. And he goes, here, handed me an iPad. He goes, I need you to answer these questions. And it was just like, are you having trouble sleeping? Have you thought this was, I'm like, what the heck is this? I'm, I'm having pain in my side, you know, like, and, and, and weird stuff going on. Like, um, I mean, digestive issues. I'm not, you know, so I go through it and I feel it. And he comes in instantly. So he obviously was getting a live feed of my answers. And he goes, okay, Martin, Mr. Martinez, I was let you know, um, you're a bundle of nerves and you're about to have a psychotic break. When's the last time you saw a therapist? And I was like, I've not been a therapist in a year and a half. I've been so busy with work. And he goes, yeah, we already, we already discussed this. He goes, you're dealing with sick parents. You've been flying back to the West coast to deal with your father with cancer. You run a business. You have all these people that are responsible for ta- you, you need to take care of and you're not taking care, care of yourself. You're giving me, he was like, he said that I was giving him a vibe of unsteadiness. And he was like, we need to get you into therapy. I want to give you some medication. And uh, I got back on track, but I was having the exact same thing happen to me. Oh, man. Yeah. And it was, I was taking care of everybody else, making sure my clients, making sure everyone, the tours went well and then, uh, and, and everything, but I wasn't taking care of myself. And I, I made sure to, I've made sure not to let that happen again. That like my, me first, like as far as I can't be good for my, my business can't be good for my bands if I'm not focused on being good here you know, for myself. So 
uh, do you mind if I add on to that like me first piece? Yeah. Uh, is it, I understand from a societal perspective why the idea of like me first has like a negative connotation because it yeah. sounds like you're being selfish. I counter that. I think it's selfless to take care of yourself, of your needs. Um, because the more that, the less that you do that, the less you have to give to people. The more that you do that, the more you have to give to people. And I'm going to give you an example that has to do with airplanes, which is ironic because there's so many planes flying over us. At the beginning of a flight, um, the flight attendants say, if the masks come down, like put yours on first before you put it on anyone else, including a kid. And it's not because flights are like anti-child or anti-helping people. It's the idea that if you, t if you put someone else's mask on first, especially if they're a kid or a person who, who's unable to do it, but you pass out, that means there's less adults who are able to help with everyone else. Uh, and also a grown adult who passes out is way heavier to carry than most people anticipate. So when you're putting on your mask, what you're doing is by putting this on, I'm making sure I can help the person who couldn't get their mask on. And you're also saying that means nobody has to take care of me because I'm going to be able to take care of myself. Conceptually around like mental health or physical health or any of those things, putting yourself first, taking care of your boundaries, managing your health means that nobody has to do that for you or has to do that at a minimum for you. And it also means you can actually take care of people more, but it feels counter to what we're told about like self-care or, or being a good person is like, oh, taking care of yourself first. I just like, why, like I was so, so stoked when you brought that up before we, we, we talked, it's like mental health is like any other thing, you know, like you got to eat well, you got to exercise, you got to take care of your mental health. Yeah, a hundred percent. And uh, it, it, it's, it's important to my functionality. Uh, not just in a, you know, for work, but also to be social, you know, and, and pleasant to be around, you know. And um, so it's it's one of the things that since that past slip where I didn't go to therapy for a while, I'm, I don't neglect any longer. Like, and, um, you know, it helps me be better at my job. It helps me like with coping mechanisms through even like when I'm dealing with a situation that is really difficult. I actually, it helps me process like getting, getting stuff done. And uh, again, taught me the importance of boundaries when I was like, this is a situation that I'm not really, I don't want to be in this situation. And instead of enduring it, I'm going to communicate that not happy. I don't want to, you know, I don't, I'm not going to do this or I'm, I don't want to be a part of this. And, and uh, uh, also helped me become more of a tear the bandaid off type person where when it when dealing with this a situation that's uncomfortable instead of avoiding it dealing with it right away like let's get this done because this is the hard part let's talk about this this situation let's let's get this done because instead of having the this moments of dread and and making something a lot worse than it really needs to be you know so um all right we're heading towards the end of the interview and I'm gonna ask you what we call the crucial three. And they're gonna be three increasingly difficult questions as we go along. Um, but before we go to that, we're gonna to get to in a second. Um, man, I feel like we could talk for another like two hours. I'm having an awesome conversation, but I do wanna talk about your bands and not just Final Conflict, but I'll just start with like Final Conflict. Very important band for me, very important band for the West Coast. Um, like, 
the legacy of the band is so alive today. And I remember the first time hearing your name from someone like just as like, not just like as like some guy that sang in a band, but as like, oh, Ron, I was talking to a guy in Vancouver who had traded records with you and was like, yeah, I got this like rare press of this like Final Conflict record from from Ron, like from the singer. And I was like, you know, it's that like you're young. You're like, wow, can you just do that? Can you just like hit up some like some like person in your world who's been notable and just trade records? He was like, yes, kind of like, yes. And he was fucking awesome. Like we had this great like back and forth. It was amazing. And then having the chance to get to know you through like the booking stuff that we did together, I always just felt like, it's weird to think like this is the guy whose record I was listening to when I was a little kid and he's the guy who's booking my band or helping me do this thing. It's one of the strengths of the punk scene, but it's also one of the strengths of you as a person. Um, so A, like thank you for all that. And B, like what do you want to tell us about your bands? Like what are you doing now? Uh, Final Conflict's still playing. You know, uh, we play when it's a show we want to be a part of. We, we get, you know, we're Jeff Harp, you know, one of the greatest things that ever happened in my life was Jeff Harp asking me to join his band. Final Conflict is his band. You know, it was his concept. It was his, but it was something that when I wasn't in the band and I saw them rehearse, I was like, oh, why is it my band, this band? You know, and it was, it wasn't only because we were hanging out at a show together and I said, I really wish I was in your band. And he was like, what? And I'm like, I really wish I was in your band. Your band is so much better than the band and like everything, the politics, everything about it is so what I'm about. And the next thing I know is literally weeks later, he calls me and he goes, well, were you serious about wanting to join my band? I'm like, yeah, why? He goes, I'm going to call you back. And then 20 minutes later, he calls me back. All right, yeah, kick the singer and the drummer out. You're in the band now. Rehearsal is going to be in a week. And, and that started everything. Like I said, I like learned how to book shows and, and all that to, to where I am. It all began with that, with Final Conflict. Because Jeff is my big brother, even though I tower over him. Um, and we're still really tight. And when we play shows, it's, it's genuinely not about how much are we getting paid? It's like, who's playing? Where's it going to be at? Oh, I'd like, I would be at that show. That's cool. Oh, yeah, let's do it. So that's how we do it. It's is, is fun. And um, I don't see, you know, as long as it continues to be fun, we'll continue to play shows, go out there and do the greatest hits, you know. Um, we keep talking about writing new stuff and we're going to do it. And, but at the rehearsals end up us just talking. And then, oh, shoot, we should play some songs, you know. So uh, that I, um, I'm also uh, playing in the lower class Brats and I've been in that band for like 10 years. I joined, I was supposed to fill in. And I just forgot to quit, like they and, and they forgot to get a new bass player. So I've become and and the cool thing about being in that band is uh, it's a complete opposite musically of Final Conflict. Um, it's definitely more like in the punk rock street and some glam rock influences, which is great because I grew. I was way more into Kiss. Yeah, you know, I was into Kiss before I was into the Sex Pistols and Black Flag. So. Um, we get to we get to do uh, our our hard rock element in a punk rock context, and those guys, all of them, like we're all best friends. Like we get along great, and um, that's that's when we just put out a brand new album uh, called Tales of the Wild and the Ugly and the Damned. And a lot of that record is 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 about 
um, life changes. Our at the time, our lead singer was dealing with a lot of life changes and going through sobriety uh, for the first time in his life. And the album is "The Tales of the Wild, Ugly, and the Damned." It's a, it's a dark record lyrically, and it's a fun record musically. And then, uh, just by a whim, I ended up joining the Angry Samoans as a replacement singer, but we've changed the name to Angry Samoan because there's only one original member left. And that's just punk rock karaoke. And uh, the Angry Samoans Inside My Brain record was like the second or third punk record I ever bought. And so we're just a tribute band. We just go and play almost all of their songs. There's a few songs that um, have not held up with the test of time and they shouldn't be played anymore. They, but they're on the record. If someone wants to hear those, you know, we don't, you know, and, uh, and that's just goofy. So it's weird. So you can see three different aspects of me. If you see me with final conflict, it's very political and very leftist and very like anti-establishment. Or if you go see me do an angry Simone show, it's like a stand-up comedy routine and it's very fun and goofy. Uh, or if you see the lower cost brats, it's like a rock and roll punk band. So it's a, I get I get to live all the things I love about punk and hardcore in in, in all these different with these three different bands. I love you it, know? man. Yeah, and lower class brats rip like legit oh, rip. And I, of course, I love Final Conflict, and of course, I love Angry Samoans and Angry Samoan. I am a huge fan ever since I was a kid. So I love that. All right, you ready for the crucial three? Yes. All right, so as I said before, we'll go to the crucial three. Three questions that are going to get gradually harder. And then when we're done, the third one, we'll just do a wrap-up. You ready? Yep. Okay, uh, first question. What is something that, what's feedback that you've gotten about being a leader or a business owner? Like specific to actually like leading people. What's feedback that you've gotten that you needed to improve on that you were successful in addressing and is no longer an issue? So not something you're still working on. What's feedback you've gotten that you're like, okay, took it on, did the work, and, you're, and you've addressed it? Wow. Um, I have a problem with the t my tone of voice, which is like the, 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 tone, the vocal equivalent of resting bitch face. <laughs> um, and I, I've had like, the people I work with, uh, uh, they've addressed it to me where they're like, you know, you've got a way of coming across with people sometimes that you're angry or your tone. And I know that's not how you meant, but the way you deliver it, man, it's just not good. And you need to change that. Like, and uh, I remember the first time that, that I had someone because we were, we were in a argument. And I was just like, well, you're just going to, I got defensive, you know, I mean, like, you're just going to have to deal with it because this is how I am. And then when I started hearing it from somebody who I respected and they were like, hey, you might want to, you might want to like your tone. Like, and I'm like, in my head, I was like, oh, there it is again. It's the tone, you know? <laughs> and that was something that I needed to learn to work, work on, mm -hmm. like on my tone with people because I'm just kind of, I've always just been, um, I've, I've had certain people throughout my life think that I was like, that didn't know much, just knew me, like maybe in, in the moment, that didn't know my background. They're like, well, you're originally from the East Coast. And I'm like, no, man, I'm Southern California kid. And they're like, wow, you got a real East Coast, like no bullshit, like get to it, like 
way like that's why i always thought you're from the east coast i'm like oh that's cool you know and i've had people like you're very german and i'm like really why do you say that because you're just very like to the point like no nonsense um but your tone you know and i was like ah uh, so really like working on i'm softening my tone in business and like way i speak to people and and being really aware of that like Oh, you're doing that voice again that you sound like you're mad. Even though you might, I might have a smile on my face when I'm talking. It's important, you know, in delivering things. Um, I remember a long time ago, a friend of mine in this band, Monster Squad, had said something that I, to this day, really sticks with me. Because he was like, uh, he, goes, he goes, yeah, I was telling someone about you, man. I said, yeah, Ron's the kind of guy. He might not tell you what you want to hear, but he'll tell you what you need to hear. And I was like, really? Thanks, man. And it's always stuck with me that like my honesty is delivered. Is, it, it, my honesty is delivered in the right way. But I also go, man, how many times did maybe I was trying to give someone positive criticism, but it just came across as shitty criticism. You know, so working on my tone with people and the way that I uh, share it. And also like, I think another problem a failing that um, I, I really, I recognized and I noticed and I work was having a conversation with my bandmate, lower class brats. And he said, I gotta be honest with you. You have a way of saying things and it really, you do this and it pisses me off. And that's what he goes, it's when we're like working out a plan and it maybe something goes wrong. You, you'll say, he'll say that I would go, look, man, I told you and then finish it. He goes, that whole, I told you really is a bum out. And I'm like, wow. And I, I heard, I, when he'd said that, I heard every time I said something to that, said something that someone, I told you, Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh man, I'm an ass. And so I genuinely worked on that. And I, to this day, I was having a conversation where something went wrong because an, an idea and instruction that I gave wasn't followed. And I caught myself going, look, man, I told you. And I stopped and said, I'm not going to deliver this. And I just went, well, I thought that we were going to do it when we, we talked. I thought we were going to approach it like this. Apparently, is that not what happened? You know, and it made made the conversation go a little bit better. So I'm I'm always looking at ways to correct myself. Like, uh, I, I think we talked about this earlier, where I said you never stop paying dues, you never stop learning. And I'm going to be 58 this year, and I still don't think I have life figured out. And I know there's room for improvement in like the way I deal with people, the way I I handle people. Always learning. And um, if someone to this day like will tell me something that's critical, I even even if it hurts my feelings a bit, or if uh, it puts me in a situation to want to be defensive or, and and have a defensive reaction, I work hard at not doing that, and just take taking it and going, hey man, this is this is leading to being a better person, you know, and like. Uh, again, I wish I would have figured this out a lot earlier in life. It would have saved me a lot of time and trouble. All right, here's your second question. Um, I laugh at this one because it's also I'm admitting something about myself. Uh, 
very much like you, I've been able to be on kind of multiple sides of the music thing. I've been in the band, but I've also run a record label. So I've, I've experienced different sides of things. And I, when I was in a band and a band that was doing well at the time, I would interact with my record label and the guy who ran my record label in a certain way that I felt was like totally fine until I started running a record label where someone acted that exact same way to me. I was like, Oh, that's terrible. And, and like years later, like called up my, my friend, Chris Rand and was like, Hey man, listen, like that was not cool of me. I'm sorry. And there's times like when you're, when you're in the moment, you're acting in a way where you're, it feels okay. Cause you don't know the other side of it. And then you're on the other side and you learn lessons. And there are also times where, you know, maybe someone is jerking you around and you actually do have to hold your ground and you're not wrong for doing that. And time proves, proves that right. So because you've been on so many different sides of it and reflecting back over all those years, what are you proud of yourself for how you've been and been like, yep, that was good. And I'm glad I was, I've been that way. And what are things, what's at least something where you're like, yeah, actually reflecting on it. I had to like have that kind of put in my face and change what what what's one on either side uh fortunately for me more of like i was right you know and i think that's just because i've always had a good intuition spider sense about things and also like being involved in this music scene for so long i've gotten experience and 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 interacted with so many other people that i've learned from maybe their examples i've been able to learn from other people's mistakes as well. But I can think of a couple things where I was like, uh, the same thing where you can, you confuse what you did with your former record label. You confuse being assertive. Well, you confuse being hard nosed and assertive as being the same thing. And they're not, no. but only with time. And the fact that you called Chris back years later and say, now I understand what you were dealing with and I apologize. That's really important to do that. Like that just shows you, who you are as a person that instead of going up, oh, that happened a long time ago, water over the bridge, but you went back to correct that. And I've had a few moments of that and it's a couple different things is maybe like working on a studio project and hiring someone that was fully capable of their job and then just over their shoulder and being a backseat driver. And the end result is hearing the record and going, man, he told us not to put the guitar that loud or put the vocal so loud and he was right. And I should have just stayed in my lane. We should have just like, man, we gave that guy such a hard time, you know? And what I learned from that is always making sure to work with people when it comes to the studio or anything, work with people whose I already know are doing good work and staying in my lane. And look, I hired this guy to mix my record. I hired this guy to do this. I hired this guy to fix my fridge. I'm not going to sit there and like, I already know, he, I've already vetted him. So I'm going to let him do his thing and stay in my lane and just let him do what he does. Um, another regret was, I think, and it, it all comes with being a young man in the music industry, was kind of letting... Um, Letting, I, I, I refer to it as young man shit, is you get caught up in like idealisms or even not even so much idealism. It's it gossip where like, oh, we can't work with this person or we can't work, we can't. Uh, I remember like Final Conflict not signing to a, record, a certain record label because we were so concerned about what our peers would think of us 
even though we should have done it. And it, and it, there was no other reason like, oh, our friends would have been mad at us if we would have put out a record with them. It wasn't a, a d detrimental to the band's ideals or anything like that, but we knew it would upset people. So we didn't do it. And, you know, so letting, letting youth ignorance and, and being more caught up in what the hive thinks instead of what was right at the time. Uh, those are definitely things like in moments that I look back and going, man, why did we, we was young man stuff, just so concerned about the really unimportant things, you know, like, um, and, and yeah, and trying to, and convincing yourself you were the smartest guy in the room when you weren't, you know, <laughs> and, and I would, I would love to go back in time and apologize to David Corey for being over his shoulder when he was mixing our record and going and going, you know what, when I told you it sounded better, like that, like my idea, it didn't. <laughs> It didn't, you know, and I, again, I, it comes with that youthful exuberance that you wanted. I could do, I could do anything, you know, and I, that, that's definitely one of the situations of that where I look back. Um, I never had any bad dealings with record labels. Like I always went in with my eyes open and I was fortunate enough to like deal with people that I'm like, look, their track record stands, you know, stands. I don't, you know. I don't have like some of the horror stories that are some of our peers do, you know, like where they're still not getting paid and their records are readily in print and they're not getting paid. Like, no, I've been, been pretty fortunate in that sense. That's why it's always important to own your masters. And I learned that pretty quick. Own your masters and also know when someone's screwing you over versus what just doesn't feel good in the moment. And you're like, you know, I, I think about things where I've been like, they're screwing us over. It's like, no, not like not even a hair of we being screwed over. We're just not getting this thing that we want. But also it's like, oh, we are actually being screwed over. And it's because we're bad at business and we didn't realize what we should be looking for and what we should be asking for. And I've been like, I've been very lucky. Uh, I've had relatively good record label experiences. And there's stuff I look back at and I'm so embarrassed. I'm like, I can't believe I sent that email. I can't believe I said that thing. And there's other times where I'm like, I can't believe I was so naive that I didn't have my stuff tied up enough to do proper business with this. And it's not necessarily someone was taking advantage. It's like you have two people, a band who doesn't know how to conduct business and a label who doesn't know how to conduct business because we're all just kids and things get screwed up, but you don't talk about it like adults. Yeah. And, and to this day, like I said, I'm 57. I'm, I have gotten over that hump of not, I'm no longer afraid to tell someone Hey, look, I don't know how this runs. I'm, I'm, I'm really flying blind here. I'm going to need some help. And instead of going, huh, I'm Ron Conflict. Dude, I've been punk rocking before you were born. I got this figured out. I've learned to go, I don't, you know, I don't have this all figured out. And I'm going to need some help on this. You fill me in. Like, you know, yeah, I've, I've learned to not be so full of myself. I think being um, self-aware is very important. Oh yeah. All right. Last question. Um, there's always some version of the three, the three best at the end. Usually I ask, oh, what are your three favorite records from this thing or that thing? I'm going to do a different thing with you because you've been around and you've seen a lot. So have you ever heard of a photo book called the unheard music? Yes. Okay. And so there's this, um, Aaron Comet bus did a little, it's not his book, but he did a little intro to it talking about this box of demo tapes that he had of these bands that nobody has heard of because they didn't get past being a demo band or a local band. Yeah. But it's like those bands 
there was something about them and it's like a shame. It's like the unheard music that they're like the best band in the world or the best band of the style, but nobody knows who they are. So what are three demos from anywhere in North America, but actually not even North America, let's say like uh, of the world that you've had bands that nobody knows about, but you can say these three bands were special. There was a band, they sent their demo to Jeff from Final Conflict. They're from Canada called Falling Bodies. And it was like, hearing that demo was like the very first time I heard Discharge, where it was just like, what the hell is this? Oh my God, they've just taken it to another level. It was chaotic. And it literally sounded like they were, they were running around in the room while they were playing and just kicking over anything. And it was this very like, deep beat aggressive primal real stuff and to this day i've not heard anything as cool as that demo i lost my copy of it the tape got eaten i've looked around and i know that they had changed their name to something else but the band was called falling bodies when was this god 1986 maybe and that was one of those one of those demos um that well was like that band and maybe they mutated into something that became really good there's certain bands out there that just have this moment in time that sometimes it's a, they only did one good thing because it was just that but at falling bodies demo was one of them um it it was a demo that got uh, another one was a demo that got released as a seven inch but it really was a demo it was recorded in a rehearsal room was this british band called sas suave and sophisticated question mark is what it stood for and it was like a um one of those like 12 songs seven inch eps and i got it from pusshead um, we were visiting his house and he would get he had a little distro and he was like oh and he would just put you need this you need this and he he was like you need this this is amazing this this band sas and it was a total like even the seven inch cover looked like a demo. It was poorly, poorly Xeroxed sleeves and they were folded in all these unusual ways. And I still have that seven inch. And it's one of those, every once in a while when someone's over and we're, we're talking about obscure bands, I'm like, take a listen to this band. And it's just primal punk rock. And it's like a perfect, it's like disorder meets like early, like, uh, um, like antidote or urban waste where it's just like this 45 second one one no song longer than a minute 10 seconds long blast of energy but it's hook it's got like these hooky vocals you know and like course like you hear the song once and you don't forget it and um that's like one of those those even when i started like kind of like there was a period of time where i had to cleanse my record collection because i needed money and it was the thing I held on. I got rid of Misfits Records. I kept the SAS seven inch. You know, I sold my like four or five Misfits seven inch, but I held on to that thing. I still have it because it's just it was one of those things when you heard it. it it's a milestone record for me. It's like the first time I heard the Bad Brains on the Let Them Eat Jelly Beans compilation, and you were like, "What the heck is this?" It was the same thing. Like, oh, these guys are just taking hardcore punk to another level like 
Yeah, yeah. So the SAS one is definitely the uh, it's a rare one. I actually looked on a Discogs. It's not as valuable as a record as I thought it should be, but it's cool because that means someone could afford to find it. You know, um, uh, another demo. You know what? I'm gonna cheat. The band got big, but the uh, the instead demo, the first instead demo, yeah, it was really good. And they were such nice guys, and they stayed nice guys. But I remember they they gave me the demo at Fender's Ballroom. They're like, "Hey, we're from Anaheim, and this is our band," you know. And I put it on, and I like the next day, and I was like. Oh wow, man! This is like this is like our seven seconds. Like these guys are like cool, and like throughout the years of being involved in the hardcore scene, what those guys became was one of the where where so many people were like, good, good things have happened for good people. They're the one band that has gotten huge that we're all happy about because they deserve it and they stayed to this day. They're still nice guys. Yeah, yeah. none of them like none of them went on to like criticized the BLM movement on Facebook yeah. or anything like that. Like they didn't get weird in their old age. They're still really nice guys and they're still hanging out. The ones that like, I still see Steve all the time, but that was a demo. Like even though they ended up becoming somebody big, they, they, you know, they're big to us, you know, they didn't get mainstream success. Yeah. All right. So first, thank you. Amazing answers. Awesome. And you yeah. just gave me two bands to try and one of them I got to try and find, but the other one I'll check out uh, SAS question mark. Uh, but instead, I'll just say like instead and shout out to uh, Rich and Steve because you guys are just the realest dudes. and I love you guys. Um, Steve was at the show the other night at the Indecision show as a fan, like just there to see music. And it's like, dude, you were instead. Like we all look up to you and he's just like out hanging out, which is of course the power of like punk and hardcore. Yeah. Like, he's just out hanging out. He's not trying to like, you know, get in for free. He's like there with everyone else. And he's just there as a fan. He's like, yeah, I'm here to see, like listed off these bands because he wanted to see him. He's like, oh, I had to take my kid to hockey or to whatever sport and then came back, you know, like just a real dude. So a uh, huge shout out to them. All right, man, we've done it. We've made it despite our massive air traffic uh, yeah. as we're wrapping up. Uh, this has been an incredibly cool conversation for me. Anything you want to share with the audience as we're closing off? Any last words? Uh, I don't know. Uh, if you want to follow me on social media, I'm only on Instagram as Ron Conflict. Uh, the new Lower Class Brats album just came out. It's on TKO Records and our record label, Orphan Music Group. You can get it online or wherever. Um, I don't, I'm really bad at self-promotion. I'm really, really, I got any to get better at this. Um, uh, anybody that wants to know what bands I work with, you can go to crawlspacebooking.com. Our roster is all up on there. Uh, there's a team of us. I'm not the only one there. I don't know. I just appreciate having this conversation. This was awesome. It's one of the coolest uh, podcast uh, video things I've done yet. Heck yeah, man. Well, thank you so much. All right, everyone. Uh, you know, if there's something I'm going to say, you know, the podcast is certainly not always people from the punk scene. It's we like to think it's a good mix of people from all over uh, different lifestyles. But my, I don't want to say my favorite episodes, but a lot of the episodes that I, I have the most fun with are people from the punk scene, especially when it's people that I get to know better through the podcast and I hear all sorts of different angles of their life. And this was one where I had a lot of moments where I was like super high like wow that's so cool to be hearing about and other points where i'm like damn like thank you for sharing that so this was a, a 
really good and really powerful episode for me. So huge shout out to you, Ron, for everything you've done and everything you continue to do. And we will see you next time on One Step Beyond. One step. One step.